0: Man, well, good morning once again. And I want to ask you before we begin this morning, um, if, if, if anyone in here would be honest and just say, hey, when I watch movies or TV shows, like, I love a good villain. Does anybody love a good villain? A few hands are growing up, okay? Like, it's not that we root for the villain necessarily, but we love to see a good one, right? Like, I, I think about Heath Ledger's Joker, right? Like, that was such a good Joker. Crazy, incredible, and so I guess most of you don't love the villain, which is fine. I expect that. But maybe you can relate to this more, and this is a lot more like in our world right now. College football's back, and uh, man, a lot of college football fans around here that got no response. But college football is back. Thank you. And uh, and I had the privilege to go with my brother-in-law to Blacksburg, Virginia, on Friday night, and in person, I got to see uh, the villains. And good prevailed, Uh, the Hokies took down the Tar Heels, Um, but it was just so reminding me of this Esther passage that we're going to be in today, that as we're introduced to a villain, it's a villain that we're probably not going to fall in love with, a villain that we shouldn't fall in love with, a villain that we're not going to look at this and say, man, what great acting, man, the writer did such a good job with the role of the villain here. No, this is, these are actual historical events where we see a man named Haman, Where all of a sudden, he has a diabolical plan to extinguish all of the Jews. And so as we begin Esther chapter 2, finishing up chapter 2, looking at chapter 3 today, let's just recap where we've been. Vashti, the queen that we were introduced to in Esther chapter 1, has been vanished. She has been vanished because she would not appear before the king wearing just her crown for all of his drunk officials. Then we go through this process of Mamukin, who gives this unwise counsel that, hey, you know what, if if anyone gets word of this, then other wives are going to begin doing this throughout the province, so you need to send out this, this, this mass email to everybody, let them know what happened, and we will find you a new queen through this process of just sexual abuse and oppression. We saw last week is Matt Mears, and shout out to Matt, I mean, man, just a great guy. I heard so many good things about Matt every time he comes here people just love him more. In fact, I don't think he can come anymore because you're going to start liking him more than me. Um, but Matt was talking us through last week that, man, we, we live in a broken system. Esther and Mordecai, the, the the new character that we were introduced to last week, that they live in a broken, fallen system. We see a system of oppression. We see a system of abuse. We see a system of, you know, the abuse of power and the abuse of, of authority. And how Esther and Mordecai can exist in this broken system knowing that there's a flawless God at work even though we can't see it. And so this morning as we finish up chapter two, we know that we have the freedom to love, serve, and honor those who are under us. We understand that while yes, a lot of times with power comes the temptation to abuse, you don't have to be in power to abuse those around you. That while King Xerxes is extremely evil, we know that there is sin that creeps within us. There is sin that we too must deal with as we see how God is working in a fractured person's life like, like mine. And so with this in mind, this is how the writer of Esther finishes up chapter 2. It says this, when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. So we know that Esther's parents, uh, Hadassah was her Hebrew name, uh, her parents have uh, deceased, and Mordecai has been raising her since she was a young girl. And then verse 21, it says this, During those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, and I don't know if that's right, but like I said, you read it fast and with authority and no one questions it. Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. And so the context of what is happening here, this king's gate, what does that exactly mean? This is where official matters would take place. This is where the king's officials would, when it came to laws or when it came to decisions, the king's gate was a place that these conversations and laws would come into effect. And now it's interesting because we don't really have a timeline between these chapters, but we see that Mordecai, while he was a Jew, he has been elevated. He's at the king's gate. Now, has Esther elevated him? We don't know. What exactly happened? But however, he's there and he hears this assassination attempt on King Xerxes. So what does Mordecai do? And we look at verse 22 and we see that Mordecai had relayed this message to Queen Esther. So he is in somehow um, talks with the queen. They still see each other. And he reports of this assassination. But it brings me to the question, and I think us to the question as readers, of why. King Xerxes is not a good king. In fact, you're telling Esther to hide her ethnicity because it would not bode well for her if he found out that she was a Jew. So why would you spoil an assassination attempt? Why wouldn't you just let these people take down King Xerxes in hopes that the next king would be better? Maybe there's a king who will tolerate you. Maybe there's a king who will elevate you. Maybe there's a king who won't be as, impre- as oppressive as King Xerxes was. Nevertheless, he does. And I think we see that Mordecai wasn't at the gate just circumstantially to hear the plot to kill the king. It wasn't that Mordecai had just been on his morning stroll. He had come to the gate and all of a sudden he hears of this assassination attempt. No, no, no. Mordecai was there providentially by God to stop the killing and thus keep the trajectory of God's plan unfolding. We have to read scripture in this way. While we're not sure exactly what's happening, as a, as, a, as, a, as a reader of this passage, we have to see, of course Mordecai is not there circumstantially. Nothing in the book of Esther is just happening because it happens. What great luck Mordecai was there to stop this plan. No, God is orchestrating, even though his name is never mentioned within the book of Esther, we know that God is orchestrating the circumstances, and his providence is here within the lives of the characters to keep the trajectory of his flawless plan going. And so before we keep reading, I just want to encourage you at this point, and a question for ourselves, it's not a point, it's more of a question. Where does God have you, and why? You see, it's a great question to ask yourself, where does God have me? But I think it's a better question to ask, why? Why? Why am I in Kernersville in 2021 right now? Why am I in the family that I'm in? God, why do I work where I work? Whose pain is within your earshot? You see, Mordecai was there to hear this. He was close enough to this, these, 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 two, uh, th- these two assassinators, if that's even a word. I don't know if it is, but it might be. Um, to hear the assassination attempt on the king's life. And I just have to wonder... Who are we within an earshot that we hear the pain of others? I'm reminded, and we're going to pray for them tonight, I'm reminded of um, all the people that we've met in the apartments prayer walking. I'm reminded of Daniel, who spent 20 years in prison and is now living across the street from our church. Are we close enough to our neighbors physically to hear their pain? Why does God have us at 556 Arbor Hill Road? Why? Why does God have you where he Has you, because a lot of times we're thinking, God, what is your plan for my life? And when we ask that question, if we're not careful, we're always thinking of what's next. God, what's your plan for my life next? But I want to encourage you with this, that God's plan for your life begins with where he has you. You want to know what God's plan is for your life? Well, just let's notice where our feet are. I'm here. On Sunday, September 5th, I'm here at Citizens Church. On Monday, September 6th, I'm going back to my job, and who's around me? I can't help but brag on them, and I think about them as I read this passage. Uh, Many of you know Gerald and Lindsay Teal moved from Jacksonville, Florida last July, or two Julys ago, to Kernersville, North Carolina. They just happened to move into the neighborhood where someone on our launch team would say, hey, my cousin is starting a new church, we'd love to talk to you about it. And they've leveraged their time in Kernersville to actually, I mean, they've been so instrumental in helping us plant. And one of the things that they always talk about, I've always heard Lindsay say this, is God brought us to Kernersville for a reason, and we're figuring that out. Where does God have you, and why? Because God is not a a, a puzzle. Where your feet are right now, and that's not to say you won't go somewhere else, that's not to say you're not in high school and you're going to a college somewhere else, that's not to say that you'll never switch jobs, you'll never move homes, etc. But where are your feet today? Where does God have you? And wherever God has you today, let's think back on our Sermon on the Mount series, where God, Jesus himself, speaks and says that you are the salt of the world in a city on a hill. He didn't say when you get to where you think you're going, that's who you are. It's who you are today, wherever you're located. Wherever you are found, you are to be different in this world. And so in faith, in faith, let's not neglect where God has us in our life. Are you single? Thought you'd be married by now? Are you divorced? Are you in school just waiting on the next thing? Where are you at in life and what could God be doing behind the scenes? That is the story of Esther. What is God doing behind the scenes? And in grace, God does the same with our lives, wherever he has you. And so this is an excellent question to ask ourselves as we continue in this story. Where does God have me? And why? Esther chapter 3, let's look at it. Starting in verse 1, after all of this, this is what it says. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, this is the villain, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all of the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he would still not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated. And notice this, since he had told them he was a Jew. So now we're introduced to the villain of the story, Haman, and the writer of Esther, whoever it might be, it could be Mordecai, it could be someone else, gets very specific here and does not just introduce us to this man named Haman, but gives him context and says that it's Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Now this is where context and historical context in particular is so key here. You see, I love stuff like this and passages like this remind us that the Bible is not cookie cutter fairy tales, but it's historical stories that are being told to the original readers and then 2,000 years later being told to us to show that God is orchestrating this world. And so here's what we see when we look at the term Agagite. For us, 2,000 years later, this may not mean a lot, but to the original reader, Agag was the king of the Amalekites in the time of Saul. Saul was Israel's first king. So we're looking at the history of the Israelites. But before that, before Saul was king, the Amalekites were the first people, the first people that tried to destroy the Jews, that tried to destroy the Israelites, the people of God. And because of this, if we were to go back, we're not going to, but in Exodus 17, God promised Moses that he would completely eradicate and erase the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. And that we would be at war with them from generation to generation. And so we have this time period from Moses to King Saul. In Moses' time, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. And God is like, "This this isn't happening. I will erase their memory, and we will be at war with them. And then when we get to King Saul, if we were to go to 1 Samuel, we see that Saul, through the prophet Samuel, Saul was ordered to attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them, put to death men, women, and children, and infants, cattle, and sheep, camels, and donkeys. And Saul did attack. However, not as he was commanded to, King Saul kept Agag, the king, alive. He spared his life, along with the best sheep, the best cattle, in disobedience to God's command. And we know that when God commands something, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. That's that's what a command means. And over the years, the Amalekites would prove to be enemies of God's people. Over the years, Israel enemies were called the Agagites, even though they had no relation to these people. In fact, Romans in the first century, the Romans who crucified Jesus, who were persecuting the Jewish people years after Esther, years after Exodus and 1 Samuel, they were still called the Agagites in Christian circles. Enemies of God's people. And so the writer of Esther is demon Haman, the son of the Agagite, not to show his blood relations, but to classify him as the ultimate enemy of the Jewish people. As a Jewish person reading this, we would understand, oh, he's an Agagite? He's my enemy. And he's not just my enemy because we have war over territory of lands. He's my enemy because he's literally trying to destroy my people. And certainly this would become true, Haman would be an enemy of the Jewish people. And so there's so much context within the book of Esther that we see, man, this is not just let me write down what happened. It's like let me be very specific so that the people that have an ear to hear what God is saying, may you hear it. And so this is who Haman is, enemy of the Jews, a very wicked man, the Agagite. But he's also a royal official in the king's province. And we read, if we were to look back at it, that for whatever reason, we're not given context of this, Haman had been elevated to the to be one of the top officials, if not the top official, within the king's province. And not only would his um, you know, his his uh his his Agagite relations and and being the son of an Agagite be troublesome for the reader. But it would also be troublesome for the reader that as soon as Mordecai spares the king's life, we jump right to the promotion of Haman. Now, Mordecai was the one who deserved it. Within the context of this passage, any king who learned of an assassination plot, if you were the one that that, that spoiled the plan and the king found out, which we, we do know, Esther told the king that it was Mordecai, you would automatically be elevated. That was just what happened. That was your reward. That was your thanks. But that doesn't happen yet. Rather, it's the enemy of the Jewish people that is elevated, and we don't even know why. We just know that he was. This would be infuriating to a Jewish reader. This makes no sense to a Jewish reader. It makes no sense to us. Mordecai just saved the king. He's passed over. Yet Haman, the enemy in the story, is elevated, and we don't know why. God, what are you doing? What is happening in this story and if we're being honest and we can kind of put ourselves in the shoes of mordecai we don't know what he was thinking at this moment however we do know this that it's hard to be passed over and i'm a two on the enneagram i've shared this before so a two on the enneagram and the enneagram is just a personality thing um, i'm classified as the helper and when i'm healthy i'll help but when i'm not healthy i'll still help but i'll expect you to help me back I help with this in mind. Man, I've been so kind to Emily. Why did she not, I mean, I made the bed yesterday. She didn't make the bed today, really? That's an unhealthy Adam. I'll help you, but don't overlook me helping you. You better thank me. It's hard being passed over. And while that's a silly example, we know that that is not a fun feeling. And I want to just encourage you with this. It'll be on the screen. That when no one sees you, God sees you. Going right along with where does God have me? Many times we're asking this question because we feel like we're not seen. God, I can't wait till the next stage in life. God, I don't feel known here. I don't feel seen here. I don't know what's going on. And no one, no one, no one sees me. Yet when no one sees you, God does see you. And I understand this morning that that's a terrible feeling. That's a terrible feeling of... Where am I? What am I doing? And it's one thing to be lost, but it's another thing to be lost and no one's looking for you. And if you're feeling that this morning, I want to encourage you that God sees you where you're at. And ironically, Mordecai was seen just by Haman for not bowing down. Certainly, as people that can maybe go to chapter 4 and chapter 5, we would see that Mordecai is eventually elevated. However, in this moment... Mordecai is living within a society that makes no sense. He just saved the king and was passed over, and now this man is ordering everybody to bow down to him, and Mordecai's not going to do it. So with that in mind, this is what the writer keeps saying. Let's look at verse 5 and 6 of Esther chapter 3. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity... It seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the ah- Ahasuerus' kingdom. And now our story is taken once again, we see a tragedy. That Mordecai doesn't seem, or Haman rather does not see it fit to just do away with Mordecai. But rather when he learns that Mordecai is a Jew, he just figures I'll just do away with all the people. Throughout time, Jewish people have been under attack. We can go to Exodus, we can go to 1 Samuel, we can look at Esther chapter 3, but we can also look at our world in the 1940s. And it's crazy that we think, yeah, this was thousands of years ago, but 1940 wasn't that long ago. And we see a plot and we see a plan to exterminate an entire population of people. Even today, we still see. We still see Jews in anti-Semitic language, anti-Semitic jokes, anti-Semitic just chaos in our world. A few weeks ago, we prayed for uh, Jews who were in New York who were being told, don't even wear your yarmulkes for fear of persecution. Don't, don't, Don't come across like you're Jewish. Forever now, God's people and the Jews have been in seemingly tragedy. And through the book of Esther, we see this constant theme of the abuse of power, that Haman, just because he has the power, he's, he's, he's going to do it. And so with this in mind, this is what Haman decides to do. And while some of these, uh, the, these, these keywords may be new to you, maybe sometimes you're wondering, like, what's the purr, what's the 12th month? Just, just pay attention to the detail that the writer is putting into the words of Esther. As we think about Haman's plan and God's people, So this is what it says, Esther chapter 3, starting in verse 7. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the purr, that is the lot, was cast before Haman each day and each month, and it fell on the twelfth month in the month Adar. When Haman informed the king Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate (laughs) Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, and we've heard that before, right, Mamukin in Esther chapter 1? If the king approves, banish Vashti. And now we have that same language. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up, authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. King Ahasuerus has just come off a terrible defeat by Greece. So the royal official's army is, is decimated. And yet Haman is saying, you know what, I'll actually build up the pot again. So the king, in verse 10, removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadath of the Agagite. Once again, don't forget who he is, the enemy of the Jews. Then the king told Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. So the royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal traps and the governors of each provinces and the officials of each ethnic group and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their possessions on the single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all people so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred by the royal command, And the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. It's terrible. It's terrible. In verse 8, we see Haman concoct this plan that the Jewish people are now a problem. Moore, in his commentary says this, that Haman's accusation of the Jews in verse 8 was diabolically clever in its construction proceeding as it did from truth, that they are dispersed and scattered, that's true, to half-truth, that customs are different. Jewish people had different customs and laws than the people living in the Persian Empire. But then he goes to an outright lie when he says that the people do not obey the king's laws. Haman tells the truth, that they're scattered. The half-truth, that their customs are different and that's bad. And then just a straight-up lie that they don't obey the king. So not only do we have a problem, but then Haman concocts this solution in verse 10. The king gives Haman full authority by giving him his signet ring. This was the ring that would be pressed on official documents, the seal of the king. Think about it as the presidential seal. For King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, to take off his official ring, he is given Haman full authority. As these documents go out, you would seal it with the ring. And if you receive this letter in your house or in your place, you would see all oh, this is this is official. Like if you were to get something in the mail from the IRS, you wouldn't just say, well, this is garbage. This is junk mail. No, there's an official seal. Like this is, this is, I should probably read this. And in the same way, people would certainly read this decree. And just like that, in the same way that the decree went out against wives in Esther chapter 1, this decree goes out with the wise counsel that you were to annihilate all the Jewish people. Young, old, men, women, and children. Plunder their possessions because they are a nuisance. They are a problem. They are a cancer to this society. But then verse 13 tells us when this is going to happen. Verse 13 says the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. And throughout this morning, we've seen the irony that a reader would, would locate, right? That the enemy was not just an enemy, but he was an agagite we would see the irony in the unwise counsel once again, where the language would be repeated, that if it suits the king, here's what you should do. (laughs) And a king with so much power, 127 provinces, gold goblets, gold couches, all this power, he's listening to this unwise counsel once again, and it's like, dude, you're so powerful, but you can't make decisions for yourself. There's irony in this passage. And then once again, as we close Esther 3 today... There's the tragic irony that the reader would pick up on as we see, what does it mean that the 13th day of Adar in the 12th month? Well, to any Jewish reader, this would jump off the page. Because while the decree is going out on the 13th day, on the 14th day in this month, it would be the Passover. And so it's not just that the enemy of the Jewish people is plotting to destroy them, but they're going to do it the day before Passover. And Passover was a time, if we were to go back to the book of Exodus, that God is sparing his people from the Egyptians. And the first Passover was celebrated when God instructed the Israelites to put blood on their doorposts so that when the firstborn of the Egyptians and the the spirit of death passed through, that it would pass over their home and no Israelite would be touched. Ever since then, it was customary, just as, you know, Haman says, their customs are different. It was customary for Jewish people to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate the faithfulness of God, to bring them out of the Egyptians' hold. And throughout time, you would celebrate Passovers recognizing that nothing can thwart the plan of God, nothing can stop God's people when God has a plan for them. yet, we see the irony here that once again, on Passover of all the days, God's people are going to be annihilated. And so while the beginning irony was maybe sort of comical, this is tragic irony. Where verse 15 tells us that not not only was Susa in great confusion, turmoil, fear, terror, but maybe even more sad than that, it's that the king and Haman sat down to drink. That they made this plan to annihilate an entire group of people, And while the city is in chaos, they sit down to drink. We read this story and we see, man, the enemy is just calm, cool, and collected. The enemy is sitting on his gold couch, drinking without restriction, as the city is in chaos. And as we end Esther 3 this morning, I believe many times the same can be true of us within our world and with our own heart, it feels like chaos. And whatever's against us is just chilling. We feel like, man, within my own heart, there's so much chaos. And the enemy, whoever you believe it is, is just smooth talking, hanging out. And this morning, I don't know who your enemy is. As we prayed in the beginning, we we do know that sometimes circumstances come against us and we may believe that other people are our enemies. But honestly, there's things within our own heart most of the time that we can't really pinpoint our enemy, but we feel the enemy. We feel the chaos and confusion within our own heart and we think, God, what are you doing? I hate where I'm at, I hate who I am. I'm not getting along with my spouse. My kids are awful. God, what, what, what are you doing? And I just want to encourage you with this, and this is our sermon in a sentence this morning, that the God who is for us is greater than the enemies that we have against us. I mean, this is the message of the gospel, that while your enemies seemingly have a plan together, a bulletproof plan that God of the universe, the God of the Jewish people, our God, is for us. And if He is for us, as Paul says in Romans 8, what can be against us? And this morning as we read that the entire Jewish population is going to be annihilated on Passover nonetheless, we as Christians thousands of years later realize That our enemy is no longer a king, a spouse, a president, whoever it might be. But our greatest enemy is the sin that we have inside of us. And now as people who are living in this thousands of years later, we too get to celebrate the Passover, which we will do this morning. We get to celebrate communion knowing that not only would God defeat King Um, Ahasuerus and Haman but God would actually deal with the true enemy in you and mine heart and it is sin it is death it is decay it is all these things that God why do I feel chaotic because sin still may reign in your life if you were in here today and you were in Jesus we know that the end we win We know that Jesus has already won. We know that Jesus no longer looks at you as a servant, but as a son and a daughter. The Bible says that you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. You are an heir. You belong. But we know that there's still chaos in our hearts sometimes. We know that life still doesn't go like we wish it would sometimes. And that's true if you're in Jesus And maybe you're in here this morning and you have no idea this whole Jesus thing. You're new to church, you're new to Jesus, and you are wondering, if there's a God out there, why is he doing what he's doing and why is my life so chaotic? I believe it's through the chaos that God is is calling us closer to him. It was through chaos, as we understand the good news of the gospel, that it was through chaos, the crucifixion, that life came. I mean, think about those three days that Jesus was crucified and then buried. It was chaos for the disciples. Hiding, not understanding what's going on. And 1 Corinthians tells us that it's actually um, foolish means that God would bring about salvation. That it's not like, oh, that makes sense to us. It's like, that makes no sense to us. It was the cross and death that brought life. Not, Not Jesus coming as he could and just wipe out everybody else. Why doesn't God just annihilate King Ahasuerus right here? Because it's through chaos that life comes. That's always been the message of the gospel. And in our world today, we look at chaos. We can go to Mount Tabor High School or we can look at Afghanistan and see chaos. God, what are you doing? Are you still for us? Are you bigger than those who are against us? These are all good questions that God can handle. And questions that you should be asking. The God who is for us is greater than the enemies that we have against us.